Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Hey, Kim. Hi, Andrew. Hey, now, have you noticed the T-shirt's got a hole in it? I was out of my room because my partner was asleep after working late at night, put my T-shirt on after I had the shower, started doing some work, jumped in the car, drove to work. But just as I was about to go out the door, Toy put a finger in the hole in my T-shirt and said, should you be wearing that? <laughs> anyway, I'm here and there's a hole in my T-shirt. And it's and dirty as well. Yeah, so. See, it's lucky you can't smell me from there. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely to have Kim along today. And look, there's a a couple of reasons we've got Kim along. One is because we're about to roll out a a premium return to work breakfast. It is premium time in Victoria. Um, It's coming up on the end of March. So some of the things you could do, sorry, it's a bit late on the system case estimate, but what we want to really talk about is projecting forward using some case studies about where your risk lives under the new classifications and structures that go there. And some of the really deep learnings we've got about inherent requirements of the job, which I think in the last six months, Kim, we've been overwhelmed with inherent requirements type of arguments. So that training will come out in the next month and a half. It'll be about six weeks away. It'll be incredibly practical. It'll be a breakfast. There'll be case studies you've got to work on. We'll drive you crazy. But the idea from it is you go out with a working understanding of premium management and inherent requirements like you've never had it before. So next year, premium time won't be quite so scary. Okay? That's for Victoria. Okay? It's just Victoria. The second one is in around about eight to ten weeks' time. We haven't fixed a date yet. We're just starting to see the latest drafts of where psychological hazards are going to land in Victoria. Mm -hmm. And so Nina and I are going to do... We're thinking a lunch, but we're very happy to have a feedback because we want a bit more time than a breakfast mm. to take you through what the psychological hazards legislation will look like in Australia. Kim will be along to talk briefly, she'd know that until now, about <laughs> how that plays out in workers' compensation land because mm. it is now the trigger for that. Yeah. And we'll talk about what it is, how you manage it, what the policy should look like, how you supervise it, and ultimately how you protect against industrially. So mm. they're fascinating things that are coming to us. On with the show. All right. So first of all, let's start off with Samantha Lublow, which is an interesting case of a woman who had a general protections claim. She got upset about some aggressive behaviour, although there was only one episode that was ever really identified in that process. Mm. As she went through that process, she got upset and she resigned. A few days later, she thought she was forced to do it. She brought a general protections claim seeking reinstatement. Yeah. I cut through that, did I? Yeah, pretty quickly. <laughs> this is my coffee for staying away. That's yours over there. <laughs> I'll finish one. I doubt it very quickly. Yeah, so in this case, it was actually the GP said to her, you shouldn't have resigned, you should have put in a workers' comp claim. And so the court said, well, the employer was fair not to accept the withdrawal of your resignation because at the time you resigned, you weren't in a heightened emotional stress. So let's just talk about that. There's two tests for withdrawing a resignation. One is a heightened state of stress at the time of putting in a resignation, so it's what's called the heat of the moment. And the second part is the nature of the the conduct of the employer offered you no choice. It's a subjective test, but offered no choice but the resignation. Yeah. Okay, so that's the context of what we're talking yeah. about. But she just couldn't satisfy the court of either of those circumstances yeah. and so, so the just, claim was um, just denied. Yeah, and I want you to think about that. There are a number of people, I've had a few people crack it at me and resign during because I'm an easy person. <laughs> <laughs> but I've had a couple of people who send me and I'm resigning and I've sent a message through, well, look, let's sit on that and deal with it tomorrow. Mm. Remember, when someone's distressed and they do resign, everybody's 
allowed to sort of crack it every now and again and make a mistake. The court doesn't treat that as a termination of employment if it was definitely in the heat of the mm. moment. And if your conduct that led towards that made them feel they had no choice, then you're up and running, okay? Well, they're up and running. So just be careful. When someone does that, don't think you've got them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. actually send out a generous email afterwards and say, look, I'm sorry if you felt stressed about it. I'll deal with it again tomorrow at 10 o'clock. If you haven't withdrawn at that stage, well, then I'll accept it, but it's not what we want, mm-hmm. okay? If a person's really angry with you, they won't talk to you at 10 o'clock and off you go. Mm-hmm. Let's go on to CBA because this is a, a fascinating case and I'll probably deal with this one rather than Kim. This is a major fine that went to Commonwealth Bank and Comsec. Yeah. Total fines were about $10.3 million and it dealt with over 7,000 employees who'd been underpaid. The 2014 and the enterprise agreement after was a precursor to what we call the annualised salary provisions of the award. So it allowed you to enter into an independent contract that set off entitlements but had to meet the boot test, so the better off overall test, and required an annualised reconciliation for every worker. CBA didn't do the reconciliation misrepresented the boot test to a number of them and underpaid them. So got a massive fine. Why is this case important? It's actually not important. In a whole lot of ways, this case is utterly irrelevant to the day-to-day dealings, except for those people who are going to use annualised salary methods of contracting. Remember, in annualised salary, you can set off things over a year's period. So ideal for seasonalised work Mm -hmm. where you want to pay someone a flat salary for cash flow and sometimes they're working 50 hours, sometimes they're working 30. You can do that with an annualised salary. You can't do that with a common law contract because it has to be better off overall every payroll period, Mm. annualised salary year-based. But when you adopt the award-based annualised salary, there are a number of caveats and obviously people can opt out of it as one of the major caveats that sits with it. But the second one is the incredibly onerous bookkeeping responsibilities that sit around individualised reconciliation of each person. Whereas in a common law contract, I look at my 100 employees, I see the people who work the longest hours, I take the the extremes, I do my calculation, I go, yeah, no, no, in any period during this year, that will meet the obligations and I'm okay. Mm. So common law contracts are by far more flexible, but they only work if you pay more on every payroll period. Mm. Okay, so CBA is a case of doing a whole lot of stuff was wrong. Actually, the union put them on notice. They self-reported. They did everything that was right right afterwards. But the court said, look, you're a big employer. You just shouldn't get this wrong. Mm. And I think for any employer that has, you know, more than 100 employees, the court's going to take the same thing. Look, you're a big business. You shouldn't get it wrong. So the penalties were incredibly high. Mm. Let's jump ahead to the next case. All right, migration exploitation legislation. I was just saying, Kim, yeah. before we came in, my partner is Vietnamese extraction and she mixed in a migrant community and she repeatedly comes home with stories of people being paid $8 cash an hour. Yeah. The migrant community is heavily exploited. Federal government are now introducing legislation will start on 1 July, which has quite serious offences around it and obviously deals with the really outlying things of people being exploited and coerced into sexual conduct and the like. Mm-hmm. And the government's doing this because, one, it doesn't particularly want migrants working in Australia once Australians having jobs. That's one part of it. But the second part, it is aware of the awful exploitation that is going on. Now, the offences of underpayment stuff all sit under Fair Work Act and a variety of other places. I want you to understand this is a separate piece of legislation in a governance structure where you must look at people who are on visas and be satisfied people aren't holding passports, people aren't misusing the leverage they have 
on people because of their visas to exploit, underpay, mistreat or deprive of opportunities. So it's a different issue. Mm. Think about it, go and have a look online. It's very easy to read about what it is, but you've got to be doing something seriously wrong to get caught under these provisions. Okay? You can go to jail. And you can go to jail. We mustn't forget that, okay? Always important to remember, (laughs) isn't it? Okay, so let's move on to the next part of it, which is deeds of release. So Scott's a really interesting case Mm. because they had raised a whole lot of issues around protected attributes, all sorts of issues, Mm. entered into a deed of settlement, and the deed of settlement with the employer had the usual carve-outs for workers' compensation and superannuation, which is a matter of law you can't resolve through any form of release process because they are statutory entitlements which live outside of it. Any attempt to do that would invalidate the document that you do. What Scott did was then try and re-agitate in the federal court a particular issue which subliminally dealt with workers' compensation but Mm -hmm. used the same substratum of facts. And the judge went, no, 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 no. Mm. Every deed of release properly drawn has these things. You can't use it to sneak around the base. The bottom line is you've released your obligations. Bad luck. But I want to deal with this issue that Kim and I were chatting about before, which is what's the difference between a deed of release and terms of settlement, okay? Terms of settlement is a contractual thing. Kim and I enter into a dispute. We go to terms of settlement. I pay money to Kim. That's called consideration under contract law. Kim accepts to forego entitlement she would have against me. Okay, good. The way that is construed is what was the party's intentions at the time of entering into it. There is no powerful person, weaker person. Mm -hmm. It's construed evenly. When I enter into a deed, I release a whole lot of things which are not, that couldn't have consideration, like mutual releases, for instance. Don't really, the forbearance to sue is not really good consideration. But we do deeds because it's nice and clean, it doesn't require any complexity and it doesn't require consideration. But what it does do is this, the person who drafted it, who seeks the benefit from it, the employer, it will be construed against the employer. In other words, it will be read to the benefit of the employee. So for those of you who have template deeds, think very carefully before you use them because it's all very well having a lawyer settle them. The facts and the circumstance of a particular case, if they're not properly articulated in the release part of it, may not release a person completely from issuing proceedings against you, okay? And more importantly, they may not allow you to agitate issues you need to agitate if the person breaches the agreement. So, you know, in a release we say excludes all, there should be another power that gives you the power to issue proceedings for non-compliance, issuing of debt, recovery of monies, particularly in non-disparagement type clauses. Mm. So we just put this case in because the basic template works, but I want to remind you the law is much more complex than a document you got on your computer that you just roll out mm-hmm. and that deeds of release fail in the Fair Work Commission three to four times a year when it is read down against the employer and simply fails, okay? And if there's coercion involved, all those sort of things go to the truth because courts don't like deeds because they don't have the usual contractual elements of consideration. Is that okay? Yep. That's good. So I didn't put you on the spot today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go to our Can't next. Can't get away. Yeah. Not good. today. I know. Well, I you, know, you, you love talking so much. <laughs> okay, you. over to you, Kim. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a safety case. You're going to talk about this. Okay, this is a safety case where the director was driving a forklift, drove up a slope, an elevated load. You just can't imagine how anyone could be that stupid. Um. He tipped over, charge of industrial manslaughter because the load 
killed somebody. Company was charged with industrial manslaughter. Director was charged with industrial manslaughter. A plea deal was done with a director who took a section 144, which is a breach of primary duty. This is an odd case. Mm. I don't think we'll see this again. No, 1.3 million fine for the company. I guess what I want to say is whenever something comes before a court for the first time, if I go back to orbit drilling, reckless endangerment, mm. the courts took an issue about saying this is where the fine could be and there was a suspended sentence rather than actual jail. It's the thin end of the wedge. So the first thing about this case is these set of facts happen again. They're everyday facts, people driving forklift dangerously, okay? Mm. Ten years ago, they would have been a primary duty breach, even if someone died, okay? They're not now, okay? It's been elevated to industrial manslaughter because it is a complete lack of care. Mm. It was such a dangerous piece of uh, plan. But we'll never see a director again being charged with Section 144 who is a driver. Now, every case we've seen that we've talked to you about jail and directors and officers' liability is where the officer is a player, they will be charged with a higher offence, where there's somebody who could only have knowledge of it, they won't be charged at all. This is a case where the person was the perpetrator, just like the sexual harassment cases that we've had in the past. They didn't charge him with a reckless endangerment as the drop down because it's almost too hard to prove. We'll talk more about that afterwards, mm. but we won't see this again. The lesson from this I want to take out, 1.3 is the bottom, not the median, yeah. and we won't see directors who are perpetrators, who are wrongdoers, getting away with Section 144 again. Mm. Okay, WorkSafe will be more courageous and say, no, we'll take it. Mm. That's Because there's so much more pressure around higher sentencing at the moment. And, look, I think that probably drags us into our next subject matter, doesn't it? We uh, go, not quite. We've got a little interruption. Oh, we go, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll do this very quickly. Right disconnect was half-assed when it came through Parliament yeah. <laughs> uh, and looked like it could create criminal offences. <laughs> so there's been the amending legislation to make sure that when I shout at Kim at 10 o'clock at night, it's not a criminal offence. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and when she shouts at me, it is a criminal offence. I just want you to know that. Okay. So let's go to the, the safety part. So in Victoria, there is a sentencing review. Can I just step back a little bit? We'll go back to the case we are just talking about. I, I should have reordered this a bit. I'm sorry. New South Wales looking at industrial manslaughter. ACT looked at reckless endangerment in the recent legislative reviews. Both New South Wales and the ACT, and it's now law and ACT, said it's really hard to prosecute a company based on individual attribution. In other words, Kim knew this therefore the company is liable. It also misunderstands that companies are a group of people, not one person. So reckless endangerment, what is reckless can mean that Kim and I both work in an organisation collectively, if you put us together, have the requisite knowledge to trigger reckless endangerment. And New South Wales is looking at that and going, but this is the same problem we have for industrial manslaughter. You know, the duty of care issues, the, the gravity of the breach of that duty of care can be decisions that are made all along the management line, but can be attributed to the officer group. Mm. So what we're seeing throughout Australia, and this is coming to the Victorian part, is this issue of attribution. How do we make companies liable for very serious offences? It's so hard to prove because Mm. it's diffuse and it's lost in the the corridors of power. We're going to see that change. And what Victoria is going in the sentencing review, and we'll keep talking about it, I think we'll see the final result in December this year, so this is just the discussion papers. Mm. They're looking first... Does the nat- should the nature of the injury be an aggravating feature? Now, my view is, no, it shouldn't be. It's not a part of the offence. It is in, in manslaughter, but in all the others, the fact that an injury arises is sort of bad luck, good luck. Mm. Now, if I, I do something that creates a risk to Kim's life and she walks away from it, should I be less liable than if I harm her or kill her? She has all her rights of common law for recovery for what, with the other part of it, 
why would I make that part of the penalty? I should penalise the serious offence for what it is mm. in creating that risk. After saying all that, Kim, the answer is the public wants blood and so the nature of the injury will start to go and we'll get victim I impact statements mm. and I think that's a nonsense but that's where we're going to land. Mm. The next part of it is what about the size of the organisation? And I think this is true. I think the penalties hit small businesses and they're a cost of business for large business. That's not so in industrial manslaughter. The penalties are getting up 18, some places 25 million. But I don't think there's any doubt in Victoria that there will be the capacity for higher sentences for larger organisations, mm -hmm. and I think that's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Can companies insure against those sorts no, of penalties? No, they can't, not at all. No, they, they, and you can never insure against jail, by the way. That was no. <laughs> Sorry, it was just being foolish, wasn't it? But, yeah, no, they can't insure. So that will change. And the last part is moving reckless endangerment to a jail period from five to ten years. There's some other stuff in the middle. That's starting to happen throughout Australia. So uh, Victoria is usually ahead of parity, but I mm. think that will be definite. So I think by 2025 we'll see very significant changes to sentencing in Victoria. And you need to understand that Australia is the lead, sorry, Victoria is the lead state in prosecution at the moment. It used to be New South Wales 15 years mm -hmm. ago when the reverse onus was there. It's yeah. certainly now Victoria. So for Victorian business, this is the time to really reflect around safety. Mm -hmm. And on the attribution part, going back to the director, there is no doubt that what we've seen throughout Australia in jailable offences is directors who do the wrong thing as the person being wrong, the sexual harasser, the driving the forklift, usually end up with a really serious penalty, but the other directors and officers aren't liable. The case we spoke about was an aberration in relation to the director. That won't happen again. Mm. But I want you to understand the next two to three years, it won't be just the director who does the thing. It will be the others with the constructive knowledge that will start to become liable. Okay. A lot today, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Lucky, <laughs> lucky, lucky you don't have to talk, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> How are we going for time? I can't even see where I'm We've got 15 minutes. We've got 15 oh, minutes. Oh, have we? 10. Crikey. Yeah. We better get on. Let's get on with it. Okay. Can we go to the next thing? Main topic, workplace investigations. Okay. I reckon we've got more than 10, to be honest with you. Uh, workplace investigations. We've got two cases for you today. Yep. Kim, first case, I'll have to get the name of the first case because I forgot what's the name. Uh, Kildy. 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 This is a, a TAFE case. So just very briefly, TAFE teacher engaged his partner's nephew when he didn't, when the nephew possibly didn't have the right qualifications to teach. And then the teacher's partner was on the management and she engaged her partner's daughter and the nephew's former partner. Anyway, three of them were stood down and a law firm, I won't name names, was engaged to do an investigation to look at dishonesty, corruption and fraud. So it's very serious allegations. And so let's just stop there. So Brigginshaw is the case around findings. Yep. So when you're looking at very serious allegations of a criminal nature, it's still a balance of probabilities, mm. more than 50%. More likely than not would be the expression that we'd use. Yep. But the nature of the evidence that makes those findings is absolutely critical. And three things happened with this investigation. One, they didn't ask the respondents. Duh. Did like, you put any allegations, allegations to the respondent? Now, that's, you just got to rub your head and wonder. It took 18 months. That's unbelievable. Yeah. But the finishing touch was in the findings to fail to identify the relevant evidence that led to the finding. There's even a worse part where the person who was the decision-maker probably didn't read the report. Yeah. But that's a different issue again. And, of course, they were all reinstated. Yeah. But can I just say out of this, your, your findings are fact. 
need to be supported by the relevant evidence in more serious cases around the Breganshaw test, mm. okay? It doesn't matter if they're pages and pages, but you've got to say what it is. This is a t- terrible case of a misadventure by the investigator, yeah. and Kim and I will talk about what the rules are around investigations, but the quick one is allegations letters must be right, they must be facts. You must speak and put those allegations along with the relevant, all of the relevant evidence under a case called Burn and Fru, which is a 40-year-old high court case for those who make up investigations. <laughs> so we didn't do that. And then when you make findings, you must make findings of fact and relevantly where there is a contest of evidence, and they couldn't because they didn't even speak to the response in this case, mm. but where there is a contest of evidence, you must say what the evidence is in the making of those findings because it is critical to the nature of Brigginshaw that you do. Mm. And it must be quick because you're doing damage to people all the way through Mm. and you're damaging the recollections of people. So there's no excuse for it. So then we come into Pedler's case. So this is an interesting one. So we've got a a serial complainer really. He's he's got, well, maybe not. Maybe not, but he's made a lot of complaints. He's lodged 89 different complaints over the course of a few years and then there was one altercation with a colleague where the colleague was inadvertently pushed to the ground. But <laughs> the investigation... Pushing the ground inadvertently. <laughs> I'd like to so be able to do said, that. <laughs> but where they went wrong was the person who investigated that altercation was the manager who'd been on the receiving end of the And was frustrated by them. Was very frustrated by the complaints, very frustrated by the employee, by then, clearly hated him, let's be frank. Um, <laughs> it's more than what you said to me. Anyway, but, yeah, it was a clear conflict. And I guess yeah. one of the things I want you to do when you look at investigating, don't ever have the investigator as a person who is seized with the subject matter well in advance because at that stage, mm. particularly if they are an advisor, like the person in HR who's regularly advised the manager mm. or the manager, they are not bringing an independent mind. They're sensitised to notes the issues there. And on a reasonable basis, they can be criticised for doing it. It is a conflict of interest. Don't do it. Get someone else in HR to do it. Yeah. All right, so look, we don't have a lot of time, but the rules in investigations to me are really clear. Yeah. Do I need to investigate? One, no, there's a lot of time I don't need and there are things I can resolve because I saw it happen. I don't need to investigate. Mm. Or the, it's not a breach of a law. It's a misconduct issue for which conciliation and getting people in a room and fixing it and being healing would work and be better and less disruptive. Yeah. Once I decide to investigate, I create a tick list with my own policies and procedures and the law of what I do, and the first thing I need to do is develop an allegations letter. Do I need a complainant? It's best to have a complainant, mm. but you don't start a complaint process by writing out a complaint. The moment someone tells you of an issue which agitates an issue of breach, you are then seized with an obligation to resolve it. Yeah. If the complaint is so scared and that happens every now and again, you can rely on your primary duty obligations that come through sexual harassment, discrimination side and safety law to be effectively the complainant on behalf of the business. So be very careful your policies don't limit it to a complainant. But the allegations must be factual on this date, at this time, at this location, this occurred, yeah. nothing else. Yeah. No rolling up having 10 things in the one place. Yeah. And you don't want to be making assumptions within the allegation that you engaged in bullying behaviour by doing Yeah, agency. please keep away from legal words. Yeah. That's for us because they do actually have a meaning and you enter in, into this fray about, mm. well, no, one action is not bullying, requires repeated, is unreasonable, yeah. all that sort of stuff, okay? That's a determination for a decision-maker. Yeah. The moment you start an investigation, get an allegations letter, advise the decision-maker that an investigation is going on, then quarantine them and don't let them know anything else that's happening mm. because you will find things around protected attributes and other behaviours 
which if the decision maker becomes aware of, there'll be an argument of general protections or discrimination at the end, so quarantine them. Yeah. You make a decision as to from in creating that allegations letter whether you go out to witnesses first. My view is you stay with the complaint for the initial allegations letter. Mm -hmm. You then may go and speak directly to the respondent or go out to witnesses and you may hone that allegations letter if you go to witnesses first. It's actually a decision on the facts of a case as to whether you go directly to the respondent or whether you go to witnesses first, mm -hmm. then the respondent. Speak to Kim because it's actually a judgment issue. It's not a legal issue. Mm -hmm. Whatever you do, when you go to the respondent with the allegations letter, please give them notice beforehand and provide support at the time you give them notice. It's for workers' compensation. has nothing to do with law. Yeah. Offer them a support person. Nothing to do with workplace law is with workers' compensation. It's understand workers' compensation is Gumby land. <laughs> at the time you're doing it, please be generous. Make sure your letters are generous. They show that, you, that everything's kept in confidence. Mm. Everyone's told everything's confidential all the way through. La, 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 la. We trickle down to the stage where we make the findings. Please make the findings simple. Be aware the difference between substantiated and unable to substantiate is clear. In other words, I don't substantiate that. I don't have the evidence that says that's true. Unsubstantiated, I'm unable to make a decision based on my test. Yep. Substantiated, I do. Where you find someone has intentionally lied to you, who's made an allegation, just please talk to us. That is a very different mechanism mm -hmm. that has to be triggered at that stage, mm -hmm. okay? Then you provide those findings in advance to the person with disciplinary action. You set out what's like and you attach the relevant policies before you speak to them and provide them with the relevant support around it. We'll talk about discipline another time. It's not hard to get an investigation right, but gee, it's easy to borrow. It's easy to get it wrong. Yeah. And remember, speed is everything. Yeah. Because you're hurting people. Mm. Remember, you stand down people for one of two reasons. One, it creates an imminent risk of safety to the people who are involved in the investigation. Secondly, you objectively have concern that the person's presence of work may impact the collection of evidence or influence evidence giving. Okay, they're the only two reasons. How'd that go? Good. You're doing well. I'm talking a lot today. Yeah. That's, my, that's my third coffee. That's why I can do that. I've turned to turkey and <laughs> Let's go on to case study. All right. Joel, I'll give you a break. <laughs> Let you breathe for a moment. Joel's worked as a consultant. He was 61 and retired from equity holding at 58. Joel's now works three days a week in his old business as a management consultant. He reported to Agatha, the CEO. Agatha had an MBA from Harvard and aspired to equity in 24-25 year. Giles held many of the traditional large clients of the firm. Agatha had changed the rules around documenting and reporting leads and actions. Giles often slipped up with these and found them bureaucratic and unhelpful. He didn't need them as he controlled 35% of the client's revenue and they had been his clients forever. The current owners were Mitch and Kwong. The third shareholder was a venture capital firm, Black Boulder, who had God, been... I said Black Bladder and I thought I said <laughs> that wrong. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Black Boulder had Gene sit on the board. Mitch and Kwong were both mid-40 Melbourne University Business School grads who had worked under Giles's tutelage for about 10 years before buying out Giles's old partner's equity and eventually him. They liked him, respected him, but found his difficulties with technology, stiff personality and reluctance to adopt new reporting frustrating. They both thought that Agatha was a gun. Agatha didn't like or respect Giles and treated him like an antique. Agatha went to Black Boulder and said that Giles was holding back key intellectual property about his clients and preventing the firm from developing a succession plan for his clients, making them dependent on him. She had not told this to Giles. At the board meeting, Jean raised the issue in front of Agatha, Mitch and Kwong. 
Agatha said that is not the only thing. She complained of his sexualised comments to her PA Beatrice and his demeaning and paternalistic attitude to her. She said he refused to follow policy directions and new reporting systems. Jean demanded an investigation and the stand down of Giles. The following day, Giles was suspended on pay. He received a letter that said, it is alleged that you are guilty of the sexual harassment of Beatrice, age and gender-based discrimination against the CEO. Agatha and repeated failure to comply with orphan and reasonable directions of Agatha in our policies and reporting systems. None of this had previously been raised with Giles. An investigator was appointed. His name was Clive. He sharpened up the allegations to explain examples of the serious misconduct. He gave a direction to attend a meeting to get Giles's evidence. Giles refused to attend and demanded appropriate particulars. A law firm engaged by the business directed him to attend and said it was a lawful and reasonable direction and if he didn't attend, they would rely on the evidence they had collected. Giles wrote back and explained the direction was an act of repudiation by the business. He accepted it and would go out and trade on his own with his clients. The firm demanded immediate undertakings. He would comply with his detailed constraints under his employment agreement. I'll bet they did. Okay, so we only had a little time. Were the allegations sufficient? Absolutely Clearly? not. Absolutely not. So the fact is you must identify date, yeah. time to the best you can, yeah. what was said or done yeah. can be as near as possible. doesn't have to be exact, but they must be able to respond to it. Yeah. So, no, it wasn't. Was the process in the investigation flawed? <laughs> yes. Absolutely deeply in every element of what yeah. was occurring. <laughs> was the business conduct reputatory? Yes, yes, it was. So when you do something which attacks a person, places, suspends them without any proper basis and raises allegations of such serious nature and refuse to actually provide procedural fairness in it. And let's go back to those old high court cases. Mm -hmm. So you're not giving any evidence of it, but you're demanding it. That's reputatory. So, yes, it is. What is the effect of that? So let's go on to the next question. Could Giles accept? Yes, he can accept the repudiation. And the interesting part under Loon's case and Paul Howarth is if an employer does repudiatory conduct that is accepted immediately, that you can't have delay or it's waiver, by an employee, the restraints are waived. Mm. Very serious consequences. If Giles took a less hostile approach, could he argue the behaviour of the firm constitutes psychological hazards and make a successful workers' comp claim mm. as long as he has an injury? Yeah. Yes. So there you go. Gee, that was a lot today, wasn't well it? Well done, Andrew. Yeah, well done. Yeah, you almost said nothing. Really. <laughs> <laughs> remember, remember, two things coming up, Kim's workers' comp breakfast, absolute must go to yeah. we'll get details out in the next couple of days to you and then nina and my psychological hazards really the how-to guide which will provide you with how to navigate it properly we look forward to speaking you. thumbs up and thank you very much and i'll wear a better shirt next week <laughs> see you later bye bye, bye.